I got friends only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause when is expensive. I got expensive, cause when is expensive. I've been reading all the work. And welcome to Put That Coffee Down, the Freight Sales Show for Closers. My name's Kevin Hill. Here, your host and my co-host today is Richie Daigle. Daigle. Yeah. Yeah. You're back. I I am back. I I missed the connection uh, on my flight last week, so I wasn't able to join the the show, but Kaylee Nix did an awesome job. Did. She did. Yeah. Yeah. And Charlie Sapper was was an awesome guest last week, too. Yeah. Talking about recruiting and jobs. We'll talk a little bit about jobs here in, in a little bit, you know, especially in the sales world and, and jobs in general right now. And then we'll have Steve Ferrara, the best-selling author now of Navigating B2B and host of B2B here on Freightwaves TV, as well as the CEO of Ocean Audit. And then we'll have Omar Singh, co-founder and president of Surge Transportation on a little bit later, about the bottom of the hour, to talk about digital freight brokerages. Are they a disruptor or a distraction? It's a great question. It is a great question. And I think Omar has a a very refined opinion about it. He wrote an article last week on FreightWaves.com, you know, discussing that and kind of uh, challenges of entrepreneurship, especially in the, the trucking industry. And we'll talk about the old joke when it comes to billionaires in trucking. It's, it's a good one. So we'll save that for, for Omar, though. Uh, but speaking of service transportation, uh, they're our sponsor, and they are the fastest-growing 3PL in the logistics space today. Based in Chicago and Jacksonville, they offer unrestricted access to almost all accounts, limitless territory, and a chance to be a key player in a growing company. To find out more about jobs at search for transportation, uh, email jobs at surgetransportation.com. Once again, that's jobs at surgetransportation. So it's 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 been a it, you guys talked about the job market last week we did and it's a rip roaring time isn't it there is a lot of um volatility in a lot of different markets <laughs> trucking certainly there's a lot of volatility mm-hmm. but even the job markets are kind of on their head and there's all these different snow globes and they're all being shook by the pandemic and um there's a big changes that typically take place over a long period of time that are happening all at once. And uh, certainly the job market and, and sales in general is one of those places where those changes are being made. It, it is. And it's all caused by supply chain disruption. So if, if one thing that is a disruptor out there these days, it is the supply chain. And a lot of companies are looking to grow. They need to beef up their sales staff. Uh, of course, supply chain, logistics, transportation, it is very volatile and uh, the job market is very hot. But other industries, whoever needs to actually deliver something right now, they are having a hard time, you know, increasing their sales, increasing their business. It's a hot economy right now. And uh, in employers on, on the Wall Street Journal, I saw, I saw yesterday they had a really good article come out on, on companies searching for salespeople. There, there's more jobs posted right now on ZipRecruiter for sales positions than ever before. I think we have a, a graph here right there of that. You should see the line. Uh, pump up since earlier this year, uh, since May into June into July, all these uh, all, all these job postings on ZipRecruiter right now for the sales position, but a, a lot of a lot of individuals are, are a little skittish of sales, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's not really a college education program designed for sales. There is for marketing, 
but not for cells, which, I mean, they're cousins, wouldn't you say, Rishi? I think so. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of assumptions that people have about salespeople and what a sales job entails. And when you think of sales, a lot of the first things that come to mind are high stress, quotas, people yelling at you, where are the numbers, what's going on? Um, Put and, my copy down is what yeah, they're saying. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and the, the sales industry is kind of undergoing this change, is having to change in order to stay competitive and, and keep the best talent indoors to where we're, you know, we've talked about this before, cold calling is becoming less and less of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more of a push on marketing to shoulder some of the responsibility for inbound. And now sales is starting to move into more of a consultative sort of role and problem solving and less of high pressure uh, sales tactics and just trying to get the sale done no matter what. Yeah, you know, I mean, inbound sales is the really the holy grail of a business, right? If you could operate 100% on inbound leads that your marketing team and your your company is producing, that's the position where you want to be, but you don't get there overnight. If you're not in that position, you need to still do outbound calls, outbound generation, outbound lead uh, generation. Uh, Mr. Wolf, who's quoted here uh, in the Wall Street Journal article, said many young workers assume that sales work means convincing customers to buy with high-pressure tactics and are turned off. Sales has dramatically changed in recent years, he says, shifting from cold calls to potential customers to consulting with companies that often seek out products. Changes in sales accelerated during the pandemic, uh, back to the article, and businesses are trying to entice more people into the job by demonstrating that they don't have to operate in a pressure cooker environment or work their phones the way sales workers once did. So I, I think those are, uh, well, I, I think maybe not the high pressure situations anymore, but I, I think you still have to work the phones. I, I think that is uh, a, a promise that uh, most employers won't be able to keep. Yeah, and, and uh, but you're seeing some, um, to your point, but you're also seeing some examples of companies that are have been able to abandon the phones mm-hmm. and still still get by. You know, there, I was mentioned to you, I saw on Twitter, I can't remember who the CEO is, what the company, there's a SaaS CEO tweeted, and I'm such an amateur at Twitter, so I take responsibility <laughs> of this. But I saw a tweet, and I should have captured it, but it said uh, there was a CEO that said, no more cold calls and cold outreach. All their business is inbound. And their marketing machine is is running uh, so well that they're they're not having to have their salespeople go outbound, and they're just handling this inbound volume. And is that the next trend? Are we seeing things going that direction, or is it just specific industries? Is it going to be transportation? Is it SaaS only? There's all these questions that come mm-hmm. up in the current sales market. If you're out there looking for a sales job. A, the pandemic with remote work, now you don't have to look in your geographic area. I might, you know, if I was looking for a job, I might look in Seattle. I might look, you know, everything is digital and electronic these days. Everything's going remote. And so a lot of people are, are, I get the feeling that a lot of people are scratching their head going, I wonder what's out there in the internet that could employ. (laughs) So um, there's this big upheaval that's happening and it's causing a lot of problems. It is. So there's this upheaval where you don't have to be tied to where you live. You you can look uh, all over the place. But if you do, if you live near where you work and if you're remote, you can move anywhere. So mm-hmm. you see a lot of migration patterns that have uh, have developed over the last 12 to 15 months that are, are very interesting. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you know, the housing market's been turmoiled by it and the job market as well because of this flexibility 
in that. But I, I think um, I, I think a lot of companies, if you can get to where it's all inbound leads, you're doing a, a fantastic job. But if you're not, uh, I, I think uh, outbound reach and, and, and cold calling, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with working the phones. Okay. I, I think I, I, I kind of enjoy it sometimes, working the phones, working the emails, working, uh, making new friends uh, out, out there. You know, that's, uh, that's kind of how I've, I've come up in sales and that's what I enjoy. Yeah, it keeps you sharp. It does. You know? And I think if you have those you phone calls. Too. Yeah, if you, if you, have if you those, generate your own leads, you get paid. <laughs> you get paid better. I mean, that's the, let's be honest. And it gives you a level of control, right? It's like if you're making calls and you know that X number of calls are going to lead to this number mm -hmm. of inbound leads, then, okay, now there's something I can do with my time that directly impacts my, my progress and my, my success. And so, yeah, that, to your point, you know, until you have such a critical mass of inbound business to where your sales team is completely inundated with inbound business, you want those salespeople using their time when they're mm -hmm. not handling inbound business, making calls and with outbound activities. Yeah. You know who's a pro at outbound activities and creating relationships and navigating that B2B world? You're going to tell me. I, I am. It's Steve Perrara. He's <laughs> a best-selling right. author now. Uh, is joining us here. How are you doing today, Steve? Hey, Kevin. Hey, Richie. It's great to be on the show today. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, anytime. It's a pleasure. I mean, you, you hit Freight Waves now this morning, our, our new morning program that uh, airs from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern time. You did an interview with Anthony and Kaylee, and now you're on Put That Coffee Down here at the noon hour. So uh, do you have a copy of the book? Let's, let's throw up the uh, Let's throw up the book and, uh, and talk about it. Oh, great. I actually don't have a cover page. I, I sent it into uh, the uh, great uh, Freight Waves uh, graphic team, and we had that on this morning. So it was really great to at least have that on uh, the air and show oh, that. We have real, it on uh, right here again. <laughs> we're really excited about it. it just uh, as we spoke, it just moved up the charts. It's now number 17 on all of Amazon and number one in the entrepreneurship space. So really thrilled of the, the fast moving pace. Uh, and today is what we kind of call hell week in, in book publishing. Um, it's really kind of the sweeps week where I'll be uh, slotted in in terms of my USA, uh, USA Today top, uh, top 100 spot. I know that feeling, Steve. So whenever I create a new email list and I'm like fixated on on the open rates and I'm tracking it, if I send out that email or if we have a really hot article on FreightWaves.com, I'm on Chartbeat, you know, looking at the metrics and I just like to see it climb up and generate page views like that. And I'm sure this entire week you're doing the same with that with the rankings of the best sellers. Well, you know, Kevin, I uh, as much as I love Amazon, to me, uh, there really are only two two lists that have mattered uh, uh, in terms of uh, being an author. One is obviously the New York Times bestselling list. The other is the USA Today uh, top 100 list. The USA uh, Today list is really, uh, I think, a true reflection of the appetite for the American public on your book. This is based on pure book sales, whereas the New York Times top 100 list is more of a cultivated editorial list based on what the, the editors in the book departments uh, love, uh, but not necessarily the best selling. So it's a little bit of a juxtaposition that the uh, most uh, of the public doesn't really recognize. But I think the USA Today list to me uh, is the imprint that I'm looking for uh, to get a, a great ranking and to really solidify my space. Um, 
you know, again, I don't consider myself an, an author, right? Obviously, uh, I'm a CEO, and, and my my main role is at freight uh, is at Ocean Audit, making sure that my clients are getting millions in refunds. But the being an author is 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 a seminal moment. It's a signature piece, and I think you know, you guys were talking about the open rates, and I made a. Uh, I was thinking this morning about how. In my in my world, it takes seven small steps, you know, to get a new client or to make an acquisition. And I think having a book eliminates step one, two, and three. It just gets you that much closer to the holy grail. It definitely does. It, it definitely so. So the the book Navigating B2B. Can you uh, give us a synopsis? It's, it's certainly about your lessons in life. Uh, you know, learning to to master that that cold outreach and and getting in front of prospects and then developing that relationship with them. I think that uh, the the whole point that a lot of um, uh, authors in in the B two B or uh, uh, personal motivation space uh, talk about is a lot of people rely on the network. You know, your network is your your most powerful asset. I take a contrarian position. I I think that the most uh, valuable valuable uh, arsenal in your um, in your quiver is your creativity and, and not your network. You know, for example, you know, two things I can just think of off the top of my head is I recall uh, uh, my roommate in Providence College. Uh, he went on to become a very successful executive at uh, Procter & Gamble. And one of the things that he did as a young 22-year-old sales rep is uh, he had a, um, they had a worldwide meeting and he hired a brass band to represent what uh, the wonders of ivory soap. And he hired it with the CEO in attendance and it could have gone south on him. But it was such a unique differentiate, differentiator for him that it really helped his career. And it was the same thing with me. You know, just being able to take a chance and, and take some daring risks, um, you're able to pull out and use those as momentum drivers going forward. I love that. I love that. And there's nothing that sets you apart from others in, a, in an industry uh, than creating an experience that is seared into the back of your brain. Now, no one's going to forget a brass band performance, right? No. That's, that's something that's <laughs> going to stick with you. And, you know, whoever's leaving that meeting is going, yeah, but the brass band, that, who, let's, know, right? you know, that's great. Um, I'm curious, you know, I guess my question is, what were your motivations for writing the book? What made you decide, uh, I want to get these stories and I have something to say and I want to put it on paper and, and, and get this out there? <clears throat> Oh, Richie, my uh, my wife has uh, always encouraged me to to do that. You know, having lived in so many different uh, several continents uh, in Asia and in Europe, um, so many unique experiences that have crossed my path. And you know, my personality is such that if I'm on an airplane or in a restaurant, um, if you're within five feet or ten feet of me, I may engage you. And I've just met so many unique people over the years, so many very uh, influential and um, and motivating characters and, and human, be human beings that have touched my life in all different parts of the world that I felt that, you know, what I'm really all about is, is you know, creating something out of nothing as a solopreneur. And I think the book doesn't necessarily appeal just to entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. It really uh, appeals to anyone that is trying to use relationships uh, to connect. Um uh, you know, I'll give you a really good example. Like I, we were searching for hotels the other day. We're building a new house not far from New York City. And uh, my wife said, you know, I really like your technique when you call a hotel, how you introduce yourself, how you, you know, talk about yourself a little bit before you ask, you know, whether they, even if they have a room for the night. And, um, you know, when I did it, 
we actually achieved, you know, a huge discount just because, you know, I, I made that clerk stay on the other end of the phone. And I noticed that when my wife went to make a, this, a similar call, she adopted or she parroted my technique and she, she was much more smooth and much more adept and, and uh, the resonated on the phone using that type of technique. So I think it's a, it's a learned collection of, of really my experiences that I wanted to compile to help others that may be, you know, hitting a stone wall or may be intimidated about, you know, becoming an entrepreneur or taking that next step to write a business plan. And there are so many different approaches to achieving monetary success in today's environment. The book is just one part of that person's challenges or life stepping stones. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you mentioned creativity earlier and, and now taking that first step. And it's, it, it's, it's scary. It's scary to take that first step into solopreneur or entrepreneurship or, or a new venture. And one of the, uh, one of the nuggets that I took out of, out of uh, navigating B2B, uh, I, I've read most of it now, is, is setting fear limits. And it was an entertaining story about how you set your fear limits, that nothing you do right now can ever be as scary as a situation you faced in, in New York. You want to uh, elaborate on that, Steve? Well, I think that uh, the one thing about that statement is that I learned from a mentor early on when I was 21, 22, selling freight in Los Angeles for U.S. lines. And uh, I was never the best cold call uh, person. And, you know, one of the things that uh, my mentor had, had taught me is what's the worst that can happen if you make a cold call and someone says no? Will it impact your health? Will, it, uh, will you die? You know, will it cause you pain? And when, when you answer the question that no, none of those things are really going to happen if somebody says no to me or rejects me. I mean, in life and business, you know, uh, I don't know if this is a, a truism, but, you know, you're going to get a lot more rejections than you are yeses, you know, when you're fishing uh, for uh, dollars in revenue. And so whenever you're in a situation, um, you know, uh, you know, I don't believe holistically in like there's a Tom Hopkins sales strategy where, you know, you ask for the business and then you shut up, you, you go quiet and you wait for someone else to blink. Um, yeah, I think that is okay. But I think at the same time, you know, you, you still need to hear a rejection several times. You know, you're not going to just put somebody on autopilot just because you read a sales book. So I'm trying to give the reader new tools where they can take a rejection and file it away as a learned experience. One of my favorite questions, what's the worst that could happen? I, I feel like I asked that question quite a bit and in lots of different scenarios where the answers might be a bit troubling, but it's still one of my favorite questions. Um, random question here. Uh, I'm curious, you know, when, when you were talking about, you know, meeting people in airports, uh, what are some of the most memorable random conversations that you've had with people that you've met um, either in the business world and B2B scenarios or just, you know, random conversations that might have happened in an airport. Any, any conversations that really are seared into your brain like a, like a brass band? I, you know, I think you, you make your own um, um, holistic uh, kind of bubble. You, you create these incredible, what I call gem moments, you know, when you're able to go out and, and, and talk and meet people or you see somebody and, and you know, you, you quickly drum up the conversation. Hey, you know, uh, I do this. What's your role? And uh, one, one of my uh, one of the things that's seared in me, uh, Richie, is I was on an airplane 
um, some time back and uh, was talking about just my passion for what I do and um, you know how I love the world of logistics and I have kind of a one one of a kind business in sea freight, right? I don't think I used the word sea freight or ocean freight. I just was talking generically about I'm an entrepreneur in maybe the supply chain space or logistics. And uh, then I asked the gentleman right away to be 100% polite and in the conversation. So what do you do? And he said, well, I'm the vice president of ocean freight at IBM. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, for the next three hours, I had a captive audience, right? You know, and uh, of course, we started that audit, audit a week later. So I think... Uh, I think good things come to those that take the proactive ability to to go out um, and 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 create a dynamic. Uh, I'll give you another really good example. My wife and I were having a, a pizza in a cafe in Prague in the Czech Republic, and we heard another American couple, men and wom- woman, speaking. And um, I looked over and I recognized this guy as kind of a minor, um, you know, B-level type celebrity in the U.S. Uh, and I mean it with peace and love. It's a good friend of mine, uh, Matthew Lesko. Uh, I, I don't know if those those guys, you guys know, you know who Matthew might be, but Matthew used to appear on a lot of infomercials in a question mark suit. He uh, he was oh, giving yeah. away free money, like the government money. Hey, you can get a government land. Yeah. Anyway, um, just just from that conversation, uh, you know, we we became lifelong friends, and you know, we stayed in his place, and you know, we've shared experiences, and uh, you, you know. Life is fleeting, and I think that uh, you know, grabbing um, a, a moment of time, um, you, you don't know who they don't who they know, right? So it's like uh, just this morning, prepping for uh, thinking about talking to you, gentlemen, um, in a hotel near New York City, and I heard a gentleman uh, speaking of containers, how hard it is to get ocean containers, five or six seats away from me, my ears perked up. And I gently said, you know, I don't know if it's relevant. I apologize for over, or I didn't mean to overhear your conversation, but here's my card. You know, I specialize in container shipping. And so just sitting here, I may have made a new client. So I think that that is a real important point of how you navigate your life and, and your business, uh, your business um, uh, roadmap, so to speak. Yeah. Steve Pereira, always on the hustle, always on the hustle. Thank you so much for joining us. How does our audience reach out and, uh, and, and contact you, but more importantly, buy the book? Right. Well, again, uh, I think the most important thing here is that, uh, you know, uh, our numbers are shooting up so strongly on Amazon.com right now under Navigating B2B, or you can go to my author profile on Amazon, Steve Ferreira. You can look me up on LinkedIn or OceanAudit.com. I thank everyone for the support. Richie and Kevin, thank you so much for having me on to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Navigating B2B, master your uh, industry, your business, and yourself. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure. And you can catch Steve's show on uh, Freightways TV here every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, he throws out great information about the, the maritime markets, ocean freight, uh, the, the tips and, and trends, and what he sees going on. Very important information, especially right now with what's happening in the maritime space. So, uh, yeah. Especially right now, right? This yeah. is uh, talk about true disruption. This is disrupting everything in, in the world right now. So it's, it's a very important part of the whole supply chain puzzle. We'll, we'll talk about sonar and, and kind of uh, talk yeah. about containers actually yeah. here after our, our uh, next guest joins us uh, to go close out the show. Exactly. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. But <laughs> I, let's, uh, let's welcome Omar Singh, uh, the, the co-founder and president of Surge Transportation here. How are you doing today, Omar? Hey guys, nice to be on again. Doing well. So, Good. 
traveling this week. My background's a little bit different, but um, happy to be here. So that's okay. No, that's okay. You're still sharply dressed as ever. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. So, so let's talk about your article that, that you, you published last week at, uh, on FreightWaves.com. And it's all about digital freight brokerages and are they disruption or distraction? And let's start out with the, the joke that you included in the, the article, the old joke about being a billionaire in trucking. Yeah, the old how do you or become be a millionaire? A, in, that's right. Yeah, how do you become a millionaire in trucking? You start with a billion dollars and open a trucking company, um, <laughs> or I, mo I modernized it to open a technology brokerage, um, because you know it's not nothing against shippers, but they they will give you as much freight as you're asking for if you're operating below cost. So, so they will keep on fueling that engine as long as you're asking for more loads that are less than cost there they have them to give to you and you can just you know keep on doing that as long as you can't you know up until you can't and it's interesting because they will do that because it's a smart business decision in some respects if someone else is going to subsidize your your transportation costs you might as well take them up on it but I, I've always thought, and I, I think it's panned out though, that once you, uh, or as, as a business, once you raise your costs to, to actually make a profit, uh, you know, and, and you become, you know, uh, your competitors become competitive with you, that's an awkward way to say it, but um, then they, they can always switch off and, and go to somebody else. Yeah. And I mean, I think more power to them, uh, to everybody. I think you should only take the kind of business that works for you. Right. And it's not going to be all loads, all shippers, all modes, all regions, you know, uh, you know, take what works and and go with it, you know, build something off of a sustainable model that is profitable and mutually beneficial for, you know, for both parties. So there's a reason for the partnership and the partnership can can last hopefully a you know a long time and continue to if not grow in volume at least be sustainable for whatever whatever percentage of business within you know that customer's world makes sense for both of you um, and you know just keep it going I have a lot of thoughts there but I want to get back to to uh, the, the article and I'm, I'm thinking about you know, there's, and I'll just go into it a little bit, but I think about all these companies that try to go out and capture market share, right? Let's let's push out these prices that are way underneath the market, grab the market share. And once we have the market share, we'll prove ourselves to be so much better and we can raise our rates and then everything will be hunky-dory and we're winning. I don't know if the narrative really plays that way in reality, though. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that it isn't quite as as direct of an equation as people make it out to be. Um, curious to hear your thoughts on that, Omar. And then also to kind of piggyback onto that question, the role of technology. So as these companies are making that transition or if they're just trying to compete with other companies that are undercutting the market, and they start utilizing technology and maybe putting their expectations in technology as being the savior of things. Is it becoming more of, of the disruption uh, and, and actually helping or is it more of a distraction and a deterrent? Um, really wordy question there. So <laughs> hopefully that wasn't too much. But yeah, curious to hear your thoughts. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to answer there. Right. But I would say. First question is on, you know, pushing out the competition. 
Um, you know, supply chain is a fragmented industry with thousands of players, right? 24,000 brokerages operating in 2021. So, you know, I think the, the idea, if you think about, you know, a centralized industry, uh, airlines, you know, maybe if they're nine or 10 big airlines, can you, can you push somebody out? Can you push one of the big guys out or acquire them? Yeah, maybe. But I think the idea of pushing out 24,000, um, you know, competitors to lock up the market and then, yeah, and then raise your rates or not have competition. Um, it's, it, that's, that's different. That's a different story saying I'm going to push out 24,000 and we're just going to be four or five, you know, big digital ones. It's, it's, it, it, it's a different game than pushing out one competitor. Right. Um, so I think that probably that strategy, um, I don't see it, I don't see it working. So I don't see disruption in that sense, but I think there are a lot of great things that the digital players have essentially given us the roadmap for. Right. I mean, certainly you know, my company is taking advantage of technologies, and APIs, integration in real time, but I'm not doing it through a competitive advantage. I mean, there are software companies out there that, you know, help us build this technology. Um, our very first customer who invited us to participate in an API environment gave us the specs and said, hey, we want you to be able, I think there were nine providers they were working with at the time in a program they call their dynamic um, routing guide and invited us and essentially gave us the roadmap and said, here's the spec sheet. It's 96 pages long. If you can, if you can figure out how to make this work, then, you know, come join this environment. And we've been able to really take that to market with lots of TMS integrations. And, and, but, you know, the fact that the digital guys have essentially given the roadmap to our industry to teach people how to do that. I think that's, I think that's a disruptor for sure. It's not a distraction, but it's, they're losing their competitive advantage. They're not maintaining it. So, uh, you know, now anybody can anybody can do it essentially, right? I mean, there's cost. It's but, kind of uh, like the, the cost of doing business now. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any any freight brokers, maybe under 50 million or maybe it's 100 million. That it's essentially not a digital freight broker in, right. in most aspects, right? Yeah. It, it, somehow tech enabled, right? I think yeah. that's what... That, that, that's what we're talking about. If it's and and, and it, it's almost like every layer now, right? Some of the routine, routine, repetitive tasks we're building bots for. You know, kind of everybody's doing that. Yeah, and I think everybody who has a large volume of business or large books of business is participating somehow in you know a tech-enabled environment, whether it's TMS integrations or some form of automation in their network that's allowing them to to do more with less. But at the same time, still be hopefully a viable company that's profitable and and only taking the business that makes sense, right? Rather than going for a market share play. I mean, obviously we lose money, right? We lose money all the time on loads and, and service them, but not not as a business model, right? Just as a as a mistake or or read the market wrong, you know, or it's a four PM get back. Of course we're gonna lose money on that one, you know. Mm -hmm. But not 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 as a way of doing business. So, of generating business, not as a way of generating business. Definitely seems like there are, you know, a lot of definitions to some of these buzzwords that are out in the industry or out in the marketplace, right? Where, where you hear tech enabled and you hear tech stack and you hear digital and data driven and all these things. 
And they could have any number of definitions from a company that buys every tech platform possible without any real plan on how to use any of it to a very strategic uh, um, you know, roadmap of exactly what they're going to do with each piece of technology they have and how it's integrated and so forth. Um, are you seeing some of the same thing? Do, do you feel like that leads towards whether something is helping disrupt and better the industry versus being a distraction? Um, yeah, just curious to get your thoughts there. Yeah, you know, I mean, we do both. I think the last time I was on, we were talking a little bit about build versus buy. And so there's there's some stuff, you know, that we build and is very proprietary and kind of, you know, we hold our cards close to our chest with what some of those projects are. But certainly I partner with other um, vendors that certain, that that essentially we buy, right? Their, their product that somehow gives us access to to better technology to better management of information to you know better access to digital freight matching um and so some of what we do is very strategic but um i'm not gonna lie there there are multiple digital freight matching vendors that we partner with and you know i think over the course of time we'll see where the real relationships and value are and probably you know, a year from now or two years from now, we won't work with as many as we figure that out. But um, I think the fact that everybody's getting access to this, that that's the disruption, right, mm -hmm. of the way that things are done, that, you know, these vendors are at conferences. I mean, they're, they're bringing on hundreds and thousands of brokers and enabling them to, to digital freight match and book it now and, and real time rate. I think that's the disruption, but it's 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 not sending them out of business. It's enabling them to do better. If we look so. at freight brokers, uh, because we're, we're freight tech, I, I suppose, right? Because when we look at freight brokers, we have twenty four thousand. You're not going to crowd everybody out. Uh, on the, the shipper side, is very fragmented. We know the carriers are very fragmented as well. So there's this long tail in the entire logistics industry between the shippers, brokers, and and carriers. But on the the tech side. It's not quite a long tail, and you're talking about digital freight matching and the, the third-party providers out there. Do you, do you think over the next two to three, four years, there's going to be a shakeout of uh, all the digital freight matching uh, possibilities out there? And the, there might be one or two big winners on that third-party software side. Yeah, I, you know, I could see that happening almost if you think about you know, the lo say the lo load boards in our industry, right? We have some mega load boards, mm -hmm. um, you know, DAT and truck stop, I think are the mega. And then you have, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 others that, you know, they're players, but I think the, the real significant volume is on those two. And so when you think about third-party vendors, I think maybe something similar like that will evolve where there are a few with, a, with just a, a stronger product and, you need the scale, uh, right? I mean, there's, so yeah, there's yeah. you need the scale for that to operate efficiently. So, uh, so you would expect there to be a duopoly or, or maybe a triopoly of, of players out there that that hold most of the. the I, I, I can right? see that. I, yeah, I could see that as you know, some of them are going to gain a lot more momentum more quickly, and then yeah, that just kind of fuels itself, mm -hmm. right? I mean, all of these things you might as well go with the product that's that's tried and tested and proven and so kind of like 
the more those companies grow, the more that they have the ability to grow because just the, the buzz is mm-hmm. there and and people recognize that they're established and, and there's value in that partnership. So kind of like shippers fuel feeding you as much losing freight as you want, you know, then those <laughs> platforms, you know, get get fueled the same way, but yeah. in a good way. So, so with 24,000 brokerages out there, and I would imagine that number may be growing or I'm sure some are falling off as well, but there's a lot of small brokerages and a lot of brokerages that are trying to figure out how to scale, what tech is needed for scaling. What's your advice? Uh, there may be some of the, some people listening in who are running small brokerages and have these questions on what tech is absolutely needed, what tech is nice to have, what how do I incorporate this and differentiate and grow with tech without being upside down on my on my uh, PNL statement? Well, you know, I mean, from a from a strategy standpoint, outside of tech, I think the most important comment on the article was, you know, just take business only take business that works for you, right? That's profitable, that is sustainable. Um, that's going to keep you in business and going to give value to your customers. And, you know, you can very much do that the old fashioned way, I think, without tech. Um, but as as people grow and scale and, and develop new business opportunities, I just think some form of automation to streamline repetitive tasks, whether it's robots, whether it's API real time pricing, um, you know, there are lots of affordable options out there. The, the third-party vendors that, that we partner with price their service uh, based on volume and the size of your company. So, so you don't have to have a $50,000 investment or $100,000 or, or whatever it is. If you are a brokerage that's moving you know, 50 loads a week or, or a month or whatever it is, there are vendors out there who will enable digital matching capabilities or digital booking capabilities for you that is scaled to the volume of business that you have. Um, so I, I personally like that. I mean, it's, it's kind of a monthly subscription model for like those TMSs. If you're not too big, you don't want to buy a hundred thousand dollar TMS, right? So say I'll get something that's going to cost a thousand dollars a month and then you can scale with it. And in the same way, these digital vendors are, are, are out there and it's just very affordable to everybody. So, you know, I think we're, we're having a good experience with it. And I, I think that everybody should probably start exploring it, um, you know, before long, I think it's going to be a bit of a norm, you know, um, in a couple of years. And since it's so scalable based on volume, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's going to be widely adopted really quickly as these, as these vendors are uh, third-party vendors more active and, and get out there more in the next couple of years. It's really a cost of doing business right now uh, is, is tech. And I, I think where, where tech will get a, a lot of companies in trouble is those that are out shopping and buying technology, but they haven't yet defined their business, right? Because you can't be everything to, to everybody, especially in 3PL and freight brokerage land. Uh, because everyone has their, you know, all shippers have their unique situations and you can't be an expert at everything. So you have to find your company. You have to pick your niche, uh, just like uh, you have at Surge Transportation. Can you uh, can, can you talk about how important it is to, to, to define your company before you go out and and try to tack technology onto it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I started with, right, in terms of the recommendations is Mm -hmm. figure out what you do well and where you're bringing value. And once you have that defined and established, you can kind of build off of that. And I think that's a bit in the article, you know, where if if you go in and try to compete on price without having a strategy, you know, it's it's just not going to it's probably not going to go well. Right. And when I had a trucking company, I mean, that was my experience. I I tried my best to to always always win on price because everyone says, well, I'll let you in the door if you can save me money. And and if you don't have a comeback for that, it's like, OK, well, how, how low do I need to go? And then maybe if I get that volume, I can build some economies of scale and efficiencies. And, and maybe if I just, you know, try to push this and pull that and tweak that, we'll get it to work. And um, and it didn't, in my experience. And I went out of business and had a very hard fall. But even when I got into brokerage after that, I think for the first six months, I was still sort of trying to trying to compete on price to get business. And, you know, it's like you can't you just I just couldn't and really had to sit down and say, what am I doing wrong that, you know, well, I have access to this much volume, but I can't make a profit. And and so what do I need to do as a strategy to be profitable, but also bring value to my customers in a different way that that makes sense for for all of us? And so our strategy is to go as kind of a, a overflow backup provider for when things go wrong, rather than trying to be the primary and get all of everything and, and, and feed that losing kind of beast. Um, and that's worked for us. And it brings value, you know, a little bit more so to kind of enterprise level shippers who have thousands of loads a week or a month or a year um, where there's a space for even if, you know, 10% of their stuff goes into a overflow environment. So tens of thousands of loads where, you know, we can say, okay, let's put a plan together to cover these at a high level of service, but, you know, we have to be profitable as well. And that, that worked for us. And when I figured that out, then, you know, things really changed and it became a popular and viable business model for us. Um, but uh, it was, it was, it was hard to figure that out. I mean, it seems easy now, but, um, but once we did, we were able to kind of just build on that. And um, I think without a sustainable model, you know, tech doesn't matter. Nothing matters um, if you're not profitable and sustainable. So makes me think about um, back in, in spring training days and yeah. uh, I threw a bullpen uh, on a mound right as Greg Maddox was getting done, you know, and, and he had like thrown 40 pitches and he had one cleat mark, you know, and I'm getting, <laughs> and, he, and he was like cursing, you know, his foot went in the same place every single mm-hmm. time. And he's cursing about his mechanics are all, in, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? But, you know, I, I had a conversation with him about pitching and of course, you know, He's one of the all-time greats, but he simplifies it. And he said, look, it's really easy pitching as anybody can do it. I'm like, thanks. You're making me feel worse. But he said it, it all comes down to having a plan, knowing how to implement your plan, and then being able to execute. If you have a plan and you know what you're trying to do as a pitcher, get guys out, and you're able to read hitters and know what pitch to throw in what situation, then you can execute on that. The math of baseball says you're good at pitching regardless of anything else. And I, I kind of feel the same way, like w- listening to you, Omar, it, it kind of echoes what I was hearing from, from Maddox in spring training is that have a plan, know how to implement your plan, and then be able to execute on that. And these are kind of fundamentals for you know success and they can be applied and put into different situations. But, and if I'm reading your article correctly, it's tech should be 
supporting one of those things, right? It shouldn't just be out there for, for, for not part of your plan or not part of the implementation or not part of the execution. It should have a place or a, a position there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a rambling a little bit, but <laughs> I'm curious, curious to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, developing tech in a B2B, and that's why I appreciate the previous guest that you had on just before me and writing a book about being successful in the B2B environment is is different, right, than um, one of my other pieces. I talk about how the um, rideshare Uber, it was a great technological, you know, disruptor in a B2C environment, but in B2B, it's different. Um, and they're having a different experience, right? And they're losing money because there are consequences in B2B that are they're, they're different than in B2C. Um, and so so it made perfect sense to disrupt the taxi industry in, in B2C, but in B2B, it's, it's different. And yeah, without that sustainable business model that works, just developing tech isn't a model. That's something you tack onto your model. Um, so... And I think they're as tech companies, that's that's their model and, and it hasn't proven to be successful yet in terms of being sustainable. Uh, it's successful at generating business, you know, operating underwater. But um, I think just having that solid platform and a sustainable model and finding a way to bring value to your customers so they they want to keep doing business with you. Yeah. And, and, and you, you need that before the tech, because, again, the tech doesn't matter if, if you don't have that. Yeah, you know, you're, you're always going to. Yeah, it's always hard work, whether it's pitching or running a business, and, and that work is done in preparation or putting out fires, right? Or, <laughs> or, or putting out, you know, trying to get tech to work with no defined plan. So it's always better for to put, the, put all your effort into the, the, the planning and the preparation instead of fixing everything that, that goes wrong, right? Like, you know, game time, it's, it's hard to, 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 to mess with your mechanics uh, mm -hmm. when you're in the second inning. It's, it's better in those bullpen sessions. Exactly. Uh, certainly, let's talk about jobs. We, we started off the off the episode talking about jobs, talking about a Wall Street Journal article. Uh, I, I know you guys are, are growing quite rapidly, Omar. And here's a quote um, from that article uh, from from someone I, I don't have the, the person's name here, but uh, he says, "When interviewing, he asks job candidates to describe the last thing they taught themselves as a way to discern whether the person is likely to stick with a new concept until they master it." So, uh, you guys are hiring a lot of people. I wanted to, to, to get your opinion on on that question to, to ask a, a new interviewee and kind of your philosophy about how you hire salespeople. I, well, I think I think it's a great question because you want to always work with, you know, lifelong learners, you know, self-starters, people who can figure things out, teach themselves. I, I love that idea, you know, and that's 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 exciting. Um, as far as salespeople go, uh, you know, we have, of course, customer sales and we have carrier sales and we have a lot more reps working in carrier sales than in customer sales. Um, strategically in our TMS integrations, you know, a lot of the, even the TMSs kind of serve as a, um, like what you guys were saying earlier on the show, it almost becomes an inbound model for, mm -hmm. for new business because shippers are very eager to adopt real-time pricing partners, um, if they have sort of an established reputation. And, and so and many of, many of those sales are are kind of inbound. And so I haven't added a new 
outside customer sales rep in, in quite a while. So these partnerships with the TMSs are, are, are very deep and kind of serve as that vehicle. Um, does that answer the question? Um, a little bit. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So so carrier sales. So like like, what type of uh, what type of questions do you like? Or I, I guess maybe you did answer the question there there at first. Um, uh, let's go back into the inbound leads though. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that and and kind of uh, is that something you meant with with these partnerships to to generate those inbound leads or is that something that happened? somewhat unexpectedly or the success it, 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 ha it happened unexpectedly you know as we were starting out you know once we developed these capabilities then kind of talked to each individual shipper at a time and they said okay well i'm gonna connect you with the it department for the tms and then we just said wait a second why don't we just work with the tmss and join their partnership network instead of doing all of these one-offs and then so you have this cloud-based integration and then it just enables the relationship to just grow a lot faster and, and, and diversify. So in many ways, custom, new, new customer sales in many ways are, are inbound or there's just a, like the writer uh, was saying, you know, steps one, two, and three, maybe those yeah. are already accomplished, but mm -hmm. you, still, you still have some work to do, right? Four, five, six, and seven, I think he said. So maybe one, two, and three are, are kind of handled in a, in a more robust way now or an yeah. automated way. But we still, of course, have work to do to onboard and, and close deals. Um, and um, with carrier sales, same way, we have in many ways an inbound model because we're covering short lead time, backup, expedite. Um, you know, there's a little bit more margin to be shared with carriers. And so, so we get a lot of inbound um, calls with carriers as well. So um, there's some inbound, inbound. And I guess that's, that's good for us, you know. It is. It definitely is. There's always work to be done, and uh, and we'll all go back after the the episode and and do our work that that needs to be done. Certainly, I thank you so much, Omar, for for joining us today. How does uh, how does our audience reach out and and contact you? Learn more about Surge Transportation. Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I think SurgeTransportation.com is there. If it's for jobs, we have a career page. If it's for um, you know, looking for capacity. Of course, we have contacts for that. If, if, if it's just you're not sure what you want to contact us for, info is is monitored and, you know, we'll get rounded to the right uh, person. So thank you guys for having me. Always a pleasure being on here. Thank yeah. you, Omar. Uh, we'll so see much. you again next month in, in August. All right. See you later. Bye. Perfect. Bye. So always interesting talking to, to, to Omar and always. getting yeah. uh, getting some some technology and 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 really like niche defining kind of your value that, that you can send to a customer. So, yep. yeah. Yep. So let's get back to ocean. Yeah. Let's talk, talk, talk a little sonar right now. Talk about the, the ocean, the container market, uh, and, and Rishi's highlight of the week going on in the freight markets right now. Yeah. So, you know, one of the great benefits of sonar is the ability to look at different modes against one another. And we're also uh, put out some new data sets you know, relatively new within the last few months here, one of which is is merging outbound and inbound volumes along with tender rejections to show a clear picture of capacity uh, for various markets. And I think it's really interesting when we put that up against inbound ocean TEU volumes. So these are the volumes of, of ocean containers that are being tendered or booked to come into the U.S. So mm -hmm. when we look at, for example, the I have a chart that I put together for Mobile, 
you know, we see the volumes of uh, containers that are being booked to go into Mobile in blue with a, a week-long forecast and the trailing white dots there. So understand that whenever those are being booked, there's going to be several weeks before they show up at port. And so it's a great leading indicator of what's to come. And a lot of people know or, or suspect that, you know, import volumes are going to turn into uh, truckload or rail volumes are going to have implications into capacity. And now we can see that in data. So in that green line, we have our capacity trend, uh, you know, scores for the, the mobile market. Basically, what is capacity doing? If it's low, capacity is tight. When it goes up, capacity is loosening. And so you see there that uh, spike in the blue, um, you know, several weeks later, we have a dip in capacity or we can see that capacity is tightening. And this is a great way to monitor and get out ahead of some of these trends a month in advance. So now we're seeing the, the volume of TEUs being booked to come into Mobile back on the rise, signaling that there could be capacity implications there three to four weeks down the road. So um, a lot going on in this chart, but the great thing about Sonar is that you can automate alerts around these metrics so that if you are operating in uh, the Port of Mobile or the Port of Baltimore or Oakland or any port market, uh, if, you, if you have an interest in those markets, you can, you can automate you know, what's going on with uh, the ocean, TEU volumes that are being booked to go into that port, what's going on with capacity. That way you're staying ahead and you are out in front of these disrupting events as they are occurring. So, um, yeah. So I have a question for you, Richie. So yeah. we, we saw in the sonar chart what was happening in Mobile. Do we, do we have an explanation for why? I mean, and, and what comes to the top of my mind is that though there's such congestion at other ports that uh, whatever port that you can get into coming into the U.S. right now is maybe an option. Am I off base on that? Or? No, you're right on point. And so when I was looking at various ports that, that were had interesting volatile shifts or movements right now, the ports that are experiencing big month-over-month -month percent changes and the, the amount of bookings or TEUs going inbound are those secondary ports. You know, you're looking at Norfolk, Charleston, mm -hmm. Mobile, Oakland, Seattle, you know, the, the congestion that's occurring at some of the primary ports is pushing people to start sending their, their shipments into smaller and likely more expensive ports. Um, the, the, and we saw this happen with Oakland. Uh, there's congestion there now, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody gets the same idea and these smaller ports aren't equipped to be able to handle the same amount of volume. And so congestion can happen a lot quicker. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of disruption happening there, and that is a trend that we're noticing. So there is, and there's likely to be more disruption coming from, from Asia uh, going forward, too. Uh, I saw Andrew Cox on FreightWaves Now uh, earlier, and I was talking to him, and it seems like there's, there's pandemic and, and COVID shutdowns in Vietnam, which uh, affects his Nike shoes. I mean, he's got a whole collection of Nike shoes, and now I don't know if he'll... You can get any more, but as, as certain countries that are large exporters to the U.S. are, are shut down because of, of spikes, because of the Delta Delta variant of, of COVID, and uh, you know, getting products out of there could just you know throw another you know just throw something else into the fire here of the supply chain and what we've been going through over the last twelve to to fifteen months. 
Absolutely. I, I made a LinkedIn post about this earlier this week. Mm -hmm. It's not just Vietnam, it's Thailand, it's yep. Indonesia. I mm -hmm. mean, Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia are all experiencing massive outbreaks of the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And if that impacts either production and factories and or shipping, you know, you, you, we're going to be, you know, Sonar users are going to see those bookings of, of TEUs out of those countries and bound to the U.S. plummet. And mm -hmm. that, that will be a key indicator of, you know, there's, there's real disruption happening and things are shutting down in the form of less product coming inbound. Um, and that's, I mean, you could, we'd have to pull in Anthony to see, <laughs> and I, I, Andrew yeah, right. and everybody to see what the downstream effects it, are. Because if demand's high and then supply plummets, like, <laughs> it what, just always reminds me of, of my, my MBA class in supply chain and, and logistics, right? It's the only one I had. It was really my, my first introduction to supply chain. And for eight weeks, because we did many semesters, for an entire eight weeks, I had a professor who I, I think the only thing he, he talked about were bullwhip effects. And, and that's the only thing I remember <laughs> from that entire eight weeks is the word bullwhip effects. And... That's all he talked about. And I was, I always wondered, you know, why, why when you talk about supply chain, everyone goes to pull with effects, but that's the, the, the one thing that really disrupts supply chains. And uh, it, it's so important. And it's, it's just a general term that doesn't really describe a whole lot, but it does actually, it, it, it's everything, right? Because you're talking about bullwhip effects of, of shutdowns in Southeast Asia, uh, port congestion, how that's going to reshuffle the entire deck as we move uh, closer to uh, certainly Christmas and peak season because those orders are being manufactured right now to be on put on a boat to, to, to get over here to be distributed to the shelves by certainly by Black Friday. And that is going to be a very interesting time. Absolutely. And then that's not even mentioning what's going to happen with demand, right? Because mm -hmm. now you see services coming back online. But then there's Delta outbreaks that are happening now that are causing people to push back and, and mm -hmm. wear a mask. And so, uh, so many moving targets, moving variables. I mean, this is like multi-variable calculus on the nth degree, trying to track everything and understand how all these things are, are playing with each other. And, and what does it all mean? <laughs> I, I know, right? right? What does it all mean? We're, we're going to find out whether we want to or not. So that is that on that part. Uh, going, going through... Going through, uh, we have Future of Freight Festival, F3, coming up in Chattanooga on November 8th through the 10th. If you haven't bought a ticket yet, buy one today. Book your hotel room. It's going to be three days of fun. We have all we have some great speakers uh, that we'll have out in, in the next week or so and a full agenda. But a lot of the agenda is just networking, uh, getting, to, getting everyone back in, in, in the same place again. And, and talking freight, listening to bands, uh, going through uh, downtown Chattanooga on special events, and uh, really catching up with your freight friends that you haven't seen in a, a couple of years. So it's going to be an exciting time. Our next virtual uh, conference is coming up on August 11th. It's Cold Chain Summit, and uh, that's very interesting, a lot of disruption in that. So you can go to live.freightwaves.com to register for free, and you can catch Put that coffee down, uh, Freightcast, and here at noon on Tuesdays. I got friends only want to talk business. I got expensive, because when is expensive? I got expensive, because when is expensive? I've been reading all the work. I've been shutting down the stars.